Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscamol, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in my apartment, La Chateau T-Dot, broadcasting to you from the southwest corner of Durham, North Carolina. Uh, i got to go over some podcast notes first, because we had recorded an episode last week that you do not see in your podcast apps, at least as of the time we are recording this one. And folks were wondering what was going on because I had made the mistake and I should have known better um, of tweeting out that we had actually, we had been in the studio. It was the first time we'd recorded in studio in like two months. And uh, we ended up not being in there in a normal time. So like normally Mike and I try and record around dinner time. We go in at like five, record for an hour and a half, two hours. And then we get out, time to eat dinner, Go home, do cardio, go to bed. Because uh, if you do it after you've eaten dinner, you got to pause it a million times because I'm, you know, might accidentally burp or get hiccups or something. Well, we got into the studio around like nine or ten, so by the time we got out, I was zonked. Mike had to go to work the next day, so I'm like, we're not going to worry about having the episode out Monday morning. Don't sweat it. We'll do it Monday night, Tuesday morning, whenever Mike has a chance to uh, to edit stuff. Well, of course, the episode didn't materialize. And then around like Tuesday evening, folks were like, hey, what's going on? I'm like, you know, I don't know. Good question. So I text Mike, don't get a response. Uh, get to like Thursday. People are like, no, seriously, what's going on? I'm like, I don't know. It's a good question. Text Mike, don't get a response. And at that point, I start getting worried because I've talked to this guy pretty regularly over the course of the past year and a half we've been doing this. Um, so I'm like, you know, is he sick? Is he been arrested for something? Did he get into a car crash and die? Did his cell phone get cut off? Like there's a million possibilities that go through my brain, uh, as a guy that does criminal defense work for a living. So finally I ended up just calling him on Friday and it uh, turns out he's had a, a family emergency. His, uh, his dad, I think had a stroke on Sunday while we were recording from the sounds of it. It may have been overnight. I'm not sure. Uh, so he is back home taking a leave of absence from work. Of course, he's going to take a leave of absence from the podcast for a bit. So what that means, fun times, I am going to try and edit this uh, this episode myself. So we'll see how it goes. Keep Mike's family in your thoughts. I've, I've conveyed to him that if there's anything we can do, we'll do it. Uh, hopefully everything will be okay. Good news is his, his dad is not dead, at least so far as I know, which is a positive. Um, but I've seen clients and people deal with strokes. So he's going to have some difficult stuff going on. We will welcome him back when the time comes. Until then, y'all are going to have to uh, bear bear with me because I, I've had some success with a few of the episodes that I've done on my own, but we've also had some real fucking disasters. I mean, there was one, uh, I guess it would have been like July or August last year, whereas I was trying to edit it, I somehow deleted the whole damn thing and had to record everything over from scratch. That was a bear. And that was separate from the one two weeks ago. Uh, where I tried to record and my hard drive like crapped out. So it's just been an interesting September and October have sucked. So I'm probably going to title this episode. Everything is awful after the theme song for the Lego movie. Cause it's just been, there's just been a shitload of craziness, you know, the laptop stuff, uh, you know, Mike's family stuff, uh, Thursday night, one of my good friends who does immigration law, one of his, uh, people got arrested and was going to get deported. Like ice was going to come and pick him up and take him away unless we could figure out how to get him bonded out of jail because he was picked up after the evening bond stuff was going on. So the next time he was going to be able to get seen would be 1030 in the morning. By that time, ICE was there. So I worked with him to you know reach a judge and get bond set and everything else. Felt like that was a really cool thing. You know, like it, I'm 
putting my criminal defense skills to some use, having a judge on speed dial and whatnot. Uh, one of my other attorneys was giving a presentation. She hadn't done it in a while. So I stayed on the phone with her for like an hour to walk through all the questions that she had. Then Thursday night, one of my clients who I'm representing on something else uh, got arrested again and I still have not figured out procedurally what has taken place, but looking at the file numbers, it looks like he got arrested for the same offense. So like there's a, a case in Durham where he got arrested out of county on that particular arrest warrant, but then got arrested again, and it's the exact same file number, which leads me to think that the county he was arrested in never updated the system to reflect that he had been arrested. So I was dealing with that on Friday. It's just been, it's just been a complete, terrible dog shit month and we're only eight days in so uh, we'll see how all that goes um few things oh god i didn't even bring this up so i you know i ran for office in 2016 a lot of y'all know that it was it was a it was an interesting experience i'm not going to say it was a pleasant experience uh, i enjoy talking to uh to voters and and discussing the issues and weighty concerns uh but a big chunk of it is begging people for money and dealing with folks who are just congenitally dishonest uh, well, apparently the state board of elections, they're supposed to audit all of your stuff. They're just now getting around to auditing my account from two years ago. And it turns out that for several of the student volunteers we had paid, apparently I had paid them too much. I had actually violated the campaign finance regulations because there was a statute uh, that says that if you pay anyone more than $50, it has to be a verified form of payment. And when I read that, to me... I, I took that to mean like verifiable, like I have to have their name and address and phone number. So I collected all that from like eight students that I hired to put my yard signs out. Uh, but no, apparently the statute means it's got to be a check or a credit card. I had paid them in cash. Uh, so I've, I've, thankfully, the, the Board of Elections was understanding about it. And they said, look, you know, this is two years later. You're not running for office. Uh, the penalty we're going to be forced to assess. We're just going to like let it sit unless you decide to run for office again, in which case you're going to have to pay it. But, you know, this is now two years later. So that came up. That was just this past week. Uh, and then before we recorded this episode, totally unrelated, my girlfriend's cat, like, puked uh, and puked under her bed because that's where he likes to hang out now for some reason. Um, so we had to, well, by we, I mean she because I was working on the podcast, had to move the entire bed out of the way to clean up cat barf. So, yeah, October, total dog shit week. And on top of that, I got a trial tomorrow. So I'm trying to record this quickly and edit it quickly so that you can still get it on time. But I've got to prep for a trial. So it's just terrible month. Absolutely terrible month. So what is going to happen with the old episode? Uh, hi, Chance. The dog is licking my knee. It's very weird. Um, I don't know. So I'm going to try and edit it myself. We still have the raw audio. Mike has not gotten to it, obviously. Um, I've set some time out Wednesday or Thursday to try and do it. And we'll see how that goes. I make no guarantees that it's going to happen. It will get done eventually. So if you're one of our listeners that listens to stuff, you know, uh, weeks after the fact, you're not going to notice a disruption because we'll just backdate the entry in WordPress so it will look like it's part of the normal rotation. And if you're part of the folks that listen the day that the episode drops, uh, most of the stuff is fairly, you know, routine. You're used to hearing it. The only stuff that's like definitely stale is my comments on the Kavanaugh nomination because now he's in fact our new justice. So just skip past the political stuff. It will come out eventually. Um, the second series in our three, four-part, don't know yet, 
uh, piece on evidence is also hopefully going to come out this week. It is on hearsay, uh, which is one of the most notorious areas of evidence law. So I'm going to work on that and try and get that out midweek as well. If you have not already done so, please join the conversation online. The Twitter account for the podcast is at Fiskamall. It is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. You can leave us a written comment on the website, Fiskamall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you would like to become one of our financial sponsors, you can do that at Patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. So on the Kavanaugh stuff... Not really going to go into too much detail about it. He got confirmed, of course, and even though you haven't heard the episode yet, uh, I was basically more or less right. Uh, I said last week that I thought he was going to get confirmed because his his total shit show of a presentation to the Senate was not to convince people that he was suitable for the office. It was to make it a culture war issue to kind of rally the base around him. So I figured he'd get all 51 Republicans plus several of the red state Democrats. Didn't quite turn out that way. Uh, He got all of the Republicans except Lisa Murkowski of Alaska who voted present, didn't say yes or no. Uh, and Joe Manchin of West Virginia was the only Democrat to cross the aisle. Heidi Heitkamp voted no. Uh, Joe Donnelly voted no. It was actually quite surprising. Uh, but he's been sworn in. He's all set to go. The only piece that I want to mention is the absolutely asinine statement from Susan Collins, who's the senator from Maine. She was Her and Murkowski were the two that watchers were like most focused on. Uh, Some people were focused on Jeff Flake too, but I don't really understand why, because Jeff Flake has not done anything useful really during his entire Senate career. Um, But one of the things she, she gave like this elaborate floor speech and then issued a formal statement. And it says, quote, I have never considered the president's identity or party when evaluating Supreme court nominations As a result, I voted in favor of Justices Roberts and Alito, who were nominated by President Bush, Justices Sotomayor and Kagan, who were nominated by President Obama, and Justice Gorsuch, who was nominated by President Trump. Here's the thing. The Senate's job is to advise and consent, not rubber stamp. So issuing a statement that you just approved everybody nominated by the president doesn't really tell me that you're actually doing your job as a senator. So we'll see what happens. She's not up for re-election until 2020. I'm sure she'll get re-elected if she wants it. But the performance of congressional Republicans was a total shit show. Uh, there's a column from Adam Serwer. I'm probably mispronouncing his name. But he writes in The Atlantic talking about the hearings and a bunch of other stuff linked in it. The title um, – actually, I don't have the title. I have a quote from it that just says, the cruelty is the point. That might actually be the title. I don't know. It's in lowercase, so I may have just copy and pasted it wrong. Uh, but it's a really good opinion column with hyperlinks to a bunch of what has happened over the past almost two years of Trumpism. The money quote at the end sums it up fairly well. Uh, he says, quote, Trump's only true skill is the con. His only fundamental belief is that the United States is the birthright of straight, white, Christian men, and his only real, authentic pleasure is in cruelty. It is that cruelty and the delight it brings them that binds his most ardent supporters to him in shared scorn for those they hate and fear. Immigrants, black voters, feminists, and treasonous white men who empathize with any of those who would steal their birthright. The president's ability to execute that cruelty through word and deed makes them euphoric. It makes them feel good. It makes them feel proud. It makes them feel happy. It makes them feel united. 
and as long as he makes them feel that way, they will let him get away with anything, no matter what it costs them. It's a, it's a fantastic column. I tweeted it out. You should go read it. We'll put a link in the show notes, but it is entirely spot the fuck on, uh, which is why this whole owning the libs is such a big deal. Uh, you know, and instead of anti-Trump, you have this breed of anti-anti-Trump people. They're not pro-Trump per se. They just really hate the never-Trump folks. It's fucking stupid. They're all a damn embarrassment. I really wish the Trump GOP would be burned to the ground and the earth salted beneath it. Uh, also going to give you a link to a column from Tom Nichols. You've probably seen me retweet him. He's at Radio Free Tom on Twitter. He's got a book called The Death of Expertise, which is actually very good. I have it on my bookshelf. Uh, he has finally decided to officially leave the Republican Party after trying to hold out. Uh, he joins David French, who's also left, a bunch of other people. Welcome to the fucking party, guys. I mean, I had decided to leave back in November after the Moscow Muppet got elected. But, you know, it, we're going to see how all of this turns out. Part of me is convinced that after Trump is gone, all of this is just going to go back to normal. Everyone who left is going to come back and nothing substantively is going to change. But then part of me also is like the absolute basest, worst impulses of people that identify as Republicans uh, has really been disclosed to everyone. I mean, they took the fucking hood off. And then for a lot of these people, they're dumb as fuck. Like not even – and I don't mean like book smart because you having a degree does not signify to me that you're necessarily intelligent. you know. And I know there are a lot of very good, hardworking, charismatic, God-fearing, et cetera, et cetera people who are not the sharpest tools in the shed but nonetheless live a positive and uplifting life that try to help the people around them and that sort of thing. But there are just a lot of really fucking dumb people who support the president. They believe things that are empirically, categorically untrue, and then when you present them with reality, they, you know, will talk about fucking QAnon or some other shit. You know, it's just, it's amazing. And I can't tell if there are more of them now than in, you know, prior years, or if they're just more obvious because of social media. I don't actually know, but I'm, I sit there, and I'm not a terribly smart person. I will stipulate to that up front. Um, but I just sit there and I'm just like, how the hell do you go through life this fucking oblivious to everything around you? You know, it's one thing if you think the moon landing was faked. You're, you're totally wrong. The science doesn't mesh. But the, the notion that the moon landing was faked is not going to have much of an impact in day-to-day -day life. So even if you believe that it was faked, which is a totally stupid belief, you can get by without it. But we got people disbelieving basic facts about the economy, about, you know, manufacturing jobs, about foreign policy, stuff that has absolutely no bearing at all in reality. And they, they just repeat this shit like it's fucking gospel. It's so bizarre to me. Uh, so we'll see what happens with Tom and David and all these other folks. You know, I just, I, I eagerly await 2020 and pray that the Democrats don't fuck it up. All right, so let's hop into the criminal justice news. In, uh, in general research, well, I guess it's technically not general research. It's more a compilation of sorts out of BBC News on the astonishing number of people with disabilities who are killed by U.S. police. Some quotes, it says, quote, conservative estimates suggest that about a quarter of those who die in police interactions have a disability, whether mental, intellectual, or physical. But other research indicates that the proportion may be far greater, 
Already in 2018 across the U.S., at least 136 people with a disability are known to have been killed by police officers, according to a database maintained by the Washington Post and analysis of local media reports. In many countries, the police would be the last resort when going through a mental health crisis, but in the U.S., they are often the first to respond because of the lack of more specialized agencies. Data concerning the number of disabled people who are killed by police in the U.S. is hard to come by. Researchers are left to go through media reports of individual cases from around the country. And the figures are not officially collected at the national level. The current estimate of 136 for this year may therefore be a gross underestimate. In hundreds more cases, it was never determined whether the person killed had a disability at all. And there may be other cases that are not reported or that researchers failed to spot. Uh, in addition to all of this on the data collection stuff, it's a very long piece. I'm going to give you the link. Uh, but they talk about Adam Trammell, who we talked about back in episode 46. This was the guy who was uh, had an anxiety disorder, took a shower to try and calm himself down. Police showed up, asked him to get out of the shower, and he didn't. They tased him repeatedly while he was in the shower, got tased I think like 16 times until he finally died. Uh, Ethan Saylor, who was a guy with Down syndrome, who was killed by police at a movie theater, and they note the irony that the guy actually loved police and would call 911 so that he could meet new police officers periodically. Uh, and Magdiel Sanchez, who we talked about way back in episode 28 last year, uh, who was the guy who was deaf and was killed because he was deaf, because the officer was shouting commands at him that the guy couldn't hear. Uh, so we'll give you that story. In federal news, you're not going to see this on NCIS. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, Leatrice Debril at Daniels was warned to keep her distance from Nadal Dia. They met in Dubai in 2016. She was a special agent with the Naval Criminal Investigative Service working at the U.S. consulate. He was a Syrian national trying to get a tourist visa to the United States. According to court documents, she reached out to contacts at the State Department and Department of Homeland Security and learned that Dia was the target of both a DHS probe and an FBI counterterrorism investigation. Uh, spoiler alert, the guy was selling stuff to Iran. Uh, Stay away from Dia, they told her, according to court documents. But instead of backing away, DeBurl Daniels became romantically involved with Dia, told him about the investigations, and warned him he would be arrested if he traveled to the United States. The Mitchellville, Maryland resident was herself arrested Friday and is scheduled to have a detention hearing in Alexandria Federal Court Wednesday afternoon. She now faces a federal charge of obstruction of justice in Houston. Uh, so basically, this guy would throw her parties, uh, loan her money, give her a bunch of gifts, hired her son to start working for a shell company that he ran, and they... I guess she fell in love with him and tipped him off to everything that was going on. So we give you a link to that in the state by state criminal justice fuckery down in Alabama, our favorite sheriff, Todd and Treakin. We've talked about him before back in episode 76. He was the corrupt sheriff that took the money intended for meals at the jail and used it to buy a beach house and other stuff and then had the guy arrested who tipped off the press about him stealing the money. He's back in the news again because this guy is just crooked as hell. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, Last Halloween, Etowah County Sheriff Todd Entrekin paid Venture Marketing Group, a Gadsden-based marketing and advertising firm, $2,800 to create a TV commercial. It was the first of several payments the sheriff would make to the company in the run-up to the June primary election. 
which Intrigan ultimately lost in a landslide to Rainbow City Police Chief Jonathan Horton. Between October 31st, 2017 and July of 2018, Intrigan would pay Venture more than $29,000 for work related to TV ads. Over that period, Venture created multiple commercials for Intrigan that only aired during the eight months prior to the election. But even though the ads feature Intrigan speaking about the sheriff's office and promoting programs he oversees as sheriff, his campaign committee did not pay Venture for the work. He instead paid the company out of an official sheriff's office account he alone controls called the Sheriff's Law Enforcement Fund. Nearly half of the money in the fund is generated by selling pistol permits to Etowah County residents, according to internal financial documents AL.com obtained from his office via a public records request. And the story goes on from there. So basically, this violates Alabama law. The guy is crooked as fuck, but he lost the primary, so thankfully he will no longer be in office next year. Uh, Also in Alabama, out of Jackson County, they're adding a new meal fee for inmates to pay so that they can give pay raises to their jailers. From that story, it says, quote, As the first day of fall rolls up on the calendar today, the Jackson County Commission goes forward with some freshly organized departments and a new policy at the Jackson County Jail. Starting October 1st, inmates there must pay $2.70 per day for their meals. The proposal was approved in a recent commission meeting. Jackson County Jail Administrator Mark Foreman brought that suggestion to the board in February saying that even if only half the expected revenue were to be realized, the county could see roughly $98,800 annually. And that's more than enough, he said, to pay for the $150 per month hazard pay he wants to offer all employees at the correctional facility. It employs roughly 41 correctional officers and another eight in support positions. Here's the thing. If you give it to everybody, it's not hazard pay. It's part of their base fucking salary. And if you're going to pay them more, you should be paying that through tax revenue. You shouldn't be telling inmates who make pennies per hour or their families helping to support them, hey, you're not allowed to eat unless you give us like $90 a month. It's absolutely ridiculous. Our entire prison system, our jail system, all of it, it's about money. It's not about punishment. It's not about rehabilitation. It's about funding other parts of the government without raising your taxes. That's the whole way this entire thing is set up. Uh, Forgive the background noise, by the way, if you hear it. The dog is chewing on his bone, and there's not going to be a way for me to cut that out while I'm still talking. So if you just hear a a crunching sound, just know that his chance just steadily chomping away right near where I record because he wants to be at my feet. It's absolutely – it drives me bonkers sometimes. So that was all out of Alabama in California, out of Adelanto. Uh, turns out an ICE prison is a pretty fucked up place to be, even when you haven't been convicted of a crime yet. From that story, it says, quote, Homeland Security inspectors who made an unannounced visit to a private for-profit immigration jail in California in May found major violations of federal detention standards. And I'm putting standards in air quotes because it's a fucking joke to think that we have standards, uh, including cells with nooses dangling from air vents, detainees losing teeth from lack of dental care, and one disabled inmate left alone in a wheelchair for nine days. 
The infernal conditions are described in a report issued Tuesday by the Department of Homeland Security's Office of Inspector General, which audited the facility overseen by Immigration and Customs Enforcement. It has a capacity of 1,940 detainees and is run by Geo Group, which owns and operates 71 federal prisons and detention centers with a combined total of 75,500 beds. The report details numerous alleged instances of substandard care and neglect by jailers who, subquote, prematurely and inappropriately locked detainees in segregation cells without proper review, uh, actions that posed, subquote, a significant threat to detainees' rights and their mental and physical health. The auditors found gross violations of health and safety standards, including detainees forced to wait weeks or months to see a doctor. Basic dental care was non-existent. With only two dentists on staff, services at the facility were so poor that inspectors could not find records of detainees receiving cleanings or fillings at any time in the past four years. One dentist told inspectors that there was no time for cleanings or fillings and that it was up to inmates to take care of their own oral hygiene despite a lack of supplies. Subquote, the dentist dismissed the necessity of fillings if patients commit to brushing and flossing, the report said. Subquote, floss is only available through detainee commissary accounts, but the dentist suggested detainees could use string from their socks to floss if they were dedicated to dental hygiene. It's fucking gross. I brush and floss every day, and I've got to change the floss daily because if you get plaque and shit on it, you don't want to reuse it again. It's fucking disgusting. Story goes on from there. I'm not going to read the rest of it. This shit is gross. It's absolutely gross. And, you know, it also makes you wonder, going back to the dentist thing, if they have not done any cleanings or fillings at any time in four years, what the fuck have they been doing? Like, that's the bulk of the dental stuff that you get done. So I don't know. That's that's ice for you in your federal prison industrial complex uh, out of Inglewood, California. You have a side effect of one party rule. This time it's when the Democrats run everything from that story. It says, quote, Inglewood police chief Mark Fronterada collected an extra sixty one thousand dollars last year that was not authorized by the city's charter, the city council or his employment agreement, according to an investigation by the Southern California News Group. The extra compensation appears to violate the city's charter and could constitute a gift of public funds. Inglewood's charter requires the city council to set the salaries and compensation of its officers by ordinance, including that of the police chief. City officials now say the bonus was omitted from a memorandum of understanding approved by the city council in December of 2016 because of a, subquote, clerical error. The roughly $61,000, representing a spike of approximately 29% over Frenerado's base salary of $210,000, is given to the chief annually because he took an 80-hour, two-week-long course through the Commission on Peace Officer Standards and Training in 2015. The executive course is the highest tier of professional development offered by the commission and is designed for department heads. It covers ethics, media relations, risk management, budgeting, and other leadership-oriented topics. Inglewood offers incentives for lower-tier certificates to its officers, sergeants, and lieutenants, but the city never properly approved an incentive for the police chief. This guy gets sixty-one grand each year because he went to a course that took two weeks like that's that's a that's a tremendous fucking amount of money holy shit uh so this guy is now 
making, you know, 210 plus 61 plus benefits, you know, a third of a million dollars every single year to be a police chief in Inglewood. Now, I, I don't know how big Inglewood is. I'm assuming it's probably pretty large, but holy fuck. Um, so that's in Inglewood, out of Orange County. Turns out the Orange County Sheriff's Office may have been eavesdropping on attorney-client phone calls for longer than people realized. From that story, it says, quote, The defense attorney who discovered the Orange County prosecutors and deputies were misusing jailhouse informants is now accusing the Sheriff's Department of intentionally recording attorney-client phone calls. Assistant Public Defender Scott Sanders filed a 48-page motion this week accusing sheriff's officials of conspiring with jail phone vendor GTL to breach calls between inmates and their attorneys. The vendor has previously acknowledged inadvertent recording of more than 1,000 calls since January 2015 because of an error during a software upgrade. But Sanders says the department and GTL discovered the error years ago and kept recording the calls anyway, only recently acknowledging the breach of one of the most sacred tenants in the law. Sanders has forged some credibility as the defense lawyer who got the district attorney's office kicked off the largest mass murder case in Orange County history for misusing jailhouse informants. Sanders also persuaded a Superior Court judge to spare the confessed murderer who killed eight people the death penalty because of perceived misconduct by sheriff's officials. Sanders is building his latest accusation partly on discrepancies in the call data from GTL. In a list of recorded calls, GTL says only seven were to the public defender's office over a three-year period. Sanders said they get more calls than that during a single hour. And the GTL list shows long stretches, up to five weeks, when no calls were recorded at all. Sanders estimates the GTL list of 1,079 recorded calls over three years is short by several hundred thousand, considering the jail books 60,000 new inmates every year. He also notes in his motion that GTL employee Larry Coleman has worked for years as a liaison with the jail deputies who handled informants. The data shows it wasn't until Coleman listened to one of the recorded calls in February 2015 that deputies began accessing the barred conversations. It didn't stop until 2017. Interesting stuff in California. And one of the byproducts of routing everything through GTL, uh, who happens to be the folks we use here in Durham as well. I don't talk to my clients over the phone. I refuse. If they need to meet with me, I will go to the jail to meet with them, but we don't talk via phone. Let's hop over to Florida, where a Miami Gardens police officer is under investigation for repeatedly fucking on the job. From that story, it says, quote, on June 23rd of 2012, Florida Corrections Officer Roland Clark locked inmate Darren Rainey in a shower with scalding hot water as punishment for defecating in his cell. Clark and his colleagues left the schizophrenic 50-year-old screaming inside the shower for two hours. By the time they returned to let him out, he was dead. An autopsy revealed Rainey's body had been so badly burned that huge portions of skin were peeling off. Clark resigned as a prison guard in July 2014 after a Miami Herald investigation into Rainey's death raised an international outcry. Prosecutors later declined to charge the guard with a crime, though, and he quickly found work with the Miami Gardens Police Department as a patrol officer. It didn't take long for Clark to start breaking the rules there, too. An internal affairs file obtained by the Miami New Times shows Clark has been investigated by his department's IA unit twice already for having inappropriate relationships with women while on duty. In the first case, Clark was suspended for five days after investigators found he'd been visiting a woman at her house while he was on 
the job, even though that investigation didn't stop him from being a finalist for the 2017 Miami-Dade County Officer of the Year Award. Now, internal investigators are looking into a second, nearly identical allegation. Audio, photos, and text messages appear to show Clark again visiting a woman at her home while on duty and in uniform, and even having sex with her on multiple occasions. Fun times down in Miami Gardens. Uh, Over in Georgia, in Henry County, so this is one of the older stories that I did not get a chance to uh, record because we had that hiatus in August. But you might remember Darren Marrow, or Desmond Marrow, rather, sorry. He was the former NFL football player who had the shit beat out of him back in December, and it was caught on video. We talked about that in an earlier episode. I'll give you a link to it in the show notes. Well, he ended up filing a lawsuit in August because, it turns out, the police department was actively trying to cover shit up, and they only decided to take action after the video went viral in April. So from that story, it says, quote, police and elected officials in Henry County tried to cover up the use of excessive force during the arrest of a former NFL player late last year. Henry County police arrested Desmond Merrow on December 2nd while responding to reports of a road rage situation. In a lawsuit filed Monday in Henry County State Court, Merrow's lawyers said the officers violated his rights and that police and elected officials worked together on a cover up. After video of the arrest circulated widely online in April, lawyers for Merrow called for the officers involved to be fired and for criminal charges filed against Merrow to be dropped. Police said at the time that the Internal Affairs Unit had done an initial use of force review, but that Chief Mark Amerman had ordered an internal affairs investigation and placed an officer on administrative duty. Two weeks later, Amerman announced the internal affairs investigation had found that Officer David Rose used unnecessary force and also was recorded on his in-car video camera system saying that he had choked Marrow and that he wasn't going to include that information in his report. Rose was fired. The same day, Henry County District Attorney Darius Patillo said no felony charges would be brought against Marrow and that the misdemeanor charges would be turned over to the county solicitor general for review. So Marrow's lawyers in April ended up praising all of that swift action, okay? But here's where things ended up getting a little wonky because, of course, if you're a good attorney, you're going to file an open records request. They got the open records documents, and it turns out the department already knew all of this stuff right after the incident happened. They just sat on it until it became a public relations problem. The story continues, quote, In reviewing documents produced in response to an open records request, Merrow's attorneys discovered that a full internal affairs investigation had already been conducted in December, days after the arrest. Then Major Mike Ireland indicated in a report dated December 7th that he reviewed Rose's in-car video, a second video shot by a citizen, 911 calls, witness statements, and the officer's reports. Ireland, who has since been promoted to deputy chief, found that the officers complied with policy. The placement of Rose's hand on Marrow's neck, subquote, does not appear to be intentional, the report provided to reporters says. Uh, In a second internal affairs report dated May 4th, so this is after the video has gone viral, Smith, who also heads the department's internal affairs unit, indicates that Rose can be heard on dash cam video telling Donaldson, I'm not going to write it down, but hell yeah, I choked that, and they've got expletive here. No one here has actually shared the video, so I don't know which expletive they actually used, uh, but it's hell yeah, I choked that expletive 
and he's not going to write it down. So we'll give you the link. There's a lot more to the story. But basically, the police and the politicians conspired to cover all this stuff up and hope it would just go away. Out of Illinois, we do have some good news. Don't let it be said that I don't report good news. Uh, The killer cop who summarily executed Laquan McDonald has been convicted of murder by a jury. Knock me over with a feather. Holy shit, didn't expect that to happen. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, Police scandals in Chicago have come and gone. But since the court ordered release of a police dashboard camera video showing Officer Jason Van Dyke shooting 17-year-old Laquan McDonald as he walked down a street in the southwest side holding a knife, the city has faced a political and social reckoning unlike any in recent decades. Police Superintendent Gary McCarthy was fired. Voters ousted Cook County State's Attorney Anita Alvarez. Mayor Rahm Emanuel opted not to run for re-election. Three other Chicago police officers have been charged with conspiring to cover up what really happened on the night of October 20th, 2014, and they are slated to go to trial next month. In addition to that criminal case, the entire police department now faces federal oversight following a U.S. Department of Justice investigation into the shooting. A Cook County jury convicted Van Dyke of second-degree murder and 16 counts of aggravated battery with a firearm in connection with McDonald's death. The verdict marked the first time in more than 50 years that Chicago police, uh, rather that a Chicago police officer has been convicted of murder for an on-duty incident. More than half a century. Chicago police have been routinely killing people because we talk about them all the time on the podcast. It's the first time someone has actually been convicted. Hallelujah. Uh, Of course, the Fraternal Order of Police promptly lost their shit uh, in a statement from the State Lodge President Chris Southwood. He says, quote, This is a day I never thought I'd see in America where 12 ordinary citizens were duped into saving the asses of self-serving politicians at the expense of a dedicated public servant. This sham trial and shameful verdict is a message to every law enforcement officer in America that it's not the perpetrator in front of you that you need to worry about. It's the political operatives stabbing you in the back. What cop would still want to be proactive fighting crime after this disgusting charade and our law-abiding citizens ready to pay the price? Uh, Yes. Yes, I am, in fact. If it's something where we are you know, following the constitution, I would be totally okay with paying the price of doing that because that's the entire fucking point of having it. Uh, so that's out of Illinois. Good riddance to Jason Van Dyke. Don't drop the soap. Uh, in Indiana, I'm sorry, that was a bad joke. I know rape is not funny, but it's just, it, it still blows my mind. The police get away with the shit for so long. You finally convict one of them after it's on video and you know, the fop can't just say, well, hey, there's video here. There was a cover-up. This guy got killed. Instead, you're basically trying to torch the reputations of 12 jurors who were forced by the state to sit through this trial and came to a conclusion based on the fucking evidence. Uh, anyhow, so that's out of Illinois. In Indiana, in Indianapolis... <laughs> God, I really hate the law sometimes. Uh, a U.S. District Court judge has granted summary judgment, which means that the cops win... Uh, in a lawsuit filed by a pregnant woman who was attacked by a police canine by accident, uh, saying that because the canine was trying to attack someone else, she cannot win her particular lawsuit. From that story, it says, quote, A U.S. District Court judge has ruled in favor of the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department in a lawsuit filed by a pregnant woman attacked by a police canine in 2015, saying that although the attack was horrendous, it did not violate the woman's constitutional rights. 
Mara Mancini was standing on her front porch when she was mauled by IMPD K-9 Scooter as he pursued a man who had fled police on foot through her west side neighborhood. The attack left Mancini, who was seven months pregnant at the time, with severe wounds to her arm and leg. She underwent multiple surgeries and took painkillers, causing her son to be born with a narcotics addiction. U.S. District Court Judge Tanya Walton Pratt wrote in a September 28th judgment that the department did not violate Mancini's constitutional rights because the dog's release and subsequent attack were intended for the suspect, not her. So, quote, Mancini and her son, KC, suffered horrendous injuries and a grievous lack of discretion by the officers. However, a grievous lack of discretion does not suffice to state a constitutional cause of action under binding Seventh Circuit precedent. Holy fuck. Like the Fourth Amendment right to be free of unreasonable search and seizure, uh, the dog quite literally seized the fuck out of her arm and leg. So that's astonishing to me. Uh, John Little, Mancini's attorney, said surgeons have told her the nerve damage to her arm is irreparable and she has severely impaired arm function. She'll likely have to declare bankruptcy to pay her medical bills. So welcome to America. Uh, In Kansas, out of Tonganoxie, whatever the hell that is, uh, policing white space Kansas edition, I guess, a guy was arrested and eventually released, but he was definitely in handcuffs, unable to go anywhere, uh, for the heinous crime of moving into his own house. From that story, it says, quote, when the police car's headlights lit up his driveway, Carl Robinson was resting his body against the top of his large screen television at the front steps of his new Tonganoxie home. What happened next, Robinson is sure, would have gone differently if he weren't a black man. It was 2.30 in the morning, his moving project had turned into a 12-hour marathon, and the heavy, unwieldy television was all that he had left to take inside. I could use a hand with this, Robinson said to the officer who shined a flashlight on him. He'd spent the next eight minutes handcuffed, seated in front of his own house, treated like a burglary suspect while the officer waited for backup to check his story. The officer's explanations struck him as flimsy. His complaints, taken to the Tonganoxie police chief, went nowhere. The 61-year-old retired military veteran told his story to the Star Wednesday in his home as he watched body camera video from the first Tonganoxie police officer he encountered on August 19th. The fact that the officer was curious, even a little suspicious, made sense to Robinson. The hour of the day was odd, and Robinson was standing over a large TV in front of his house, Uh, But as the story goes on, you find out the guy had picture ID. He had proof that he owned the house inside. Uh, The officer claimed there had been a spike in break-ins, but that turned out to be a lie. And it goes on and on from there. So we'll give you the link. But basically, this guy had to endure being cuffed on the first day in his new home uh, because a police officer would not actually think to check the guy's ID and ownership paperwork until he had a full-ass SWAT team there to back him up. Uh, That was in, what state was that in? Sorry, hang on. Let me go back. Was that Kansas? Yeah, that was Kansas. Out of Louisiana, the floor-to-ceiling clusterfuck of criminal justice, you will be shocked to hear that we have good news. Don't let it be said that I don't report good news. So out of New Orleans, quote, a man wielding a machete close to New Orleans City Hall was taken into custody this week after being subdued with a stun gun. Video recorded by WWL-TV showed the confrontation between the man and law enforcement officers. A Louisiana state police trooper is seen approaching the man's left side. The man who refused to drop his weapon was disarmed by a stun gun and escorted from the scene. 
Louisiana State Police, the New Orleans Police Department, and the Orleans Parish Sheriff's Office all responded to the scene. The state police received a call about the suspect yelling and waving the machete in Duncan Plaza across from City Hall. There were no injuries recorded, and the man's identity was not released. In a Facebook post on Tuesday, state police described the scene and added, subquote, great job to all involved. I fucking agree. And let this be a reminder that police killing people is a choice. They choose to do it. This guy had a fucking machete. He's waving it around like he's lost his damn mind. And they managed to not kill him. They took him into custody safely, disarmed him safely, and he is still alive. Imagine that. Holy shit. So kudos to the Louisiana State Police, New Orleans Police Department, and Orleans Parish Sheriff's Office for pulling that off. Um, And as a general thing for Louisiana, this is a separate story, not really in our uh, wheelhouse because it's about the pension fund for firefighters as opposed to criminal justice fuckery. But the story was interesting. So I'm going to give you a link to the full blog post, but basically it's the CPA doing a review of different pension funds around the country. And there's some excerpts about Louisiana specifically. It says, quote, Perhaps there is no greater public pension horror story than that of the New Orleans Firefighters Pension and Relief Fund. According to the latest actuarial report, the fund has $43 million in assets to cover $464 million in liabilities. That's a 10 to 1 disparity there. Uh, that's a 10% funded ratio. Sorry, so I was like ad-libbing the ratio and turns out it's actually right there in the story. That's a 10% funded ratio. The woes of the firefighter's pension are numerous and include the city of New Orleans withholding payments to the fund for multiple years. However, the investment decisions made by the fund's board were unbelievably bad, perhaps borderline criminal. Mistakes include a $15 million investment in a Cayman Island hedge fund that went bankrupt and the purchase of a failing golf course for more than $40 million that is currently valued at only $1.5 million. They might as well have put cash on the table and lit it on fire. The most recent performance report for the fund shows $53 million of assets, of which only 45% is invested in liquid securities. The remaining $29 million is allocated to hedge funds, private equity, and real estate. In the board's defense, they had to sell liquid investments to fund retiree payments in recent years while the city has not made required contributions. However, even before these private investments blew up, the fund was heavily invested in illiquid assets. I could go on and on about the terrible investment choices made by the fund. Private loans, stock in now bankrupt First NBC Bank while the bank was lending to the fund, 50% of the fund assets and private real estate. The most frightening part of this story is that the fund's board was working with an institutional consultant while making these decisions. Institutional consultants are supposed to be the professionals who save pension funds from making such horrible decisions. So it turns out Louisiana's clusterfuckery goes beyond just police. Who knew? Uh, Out of Maryland, we have the fourth rule of Fisk twice. That is, The Wire was a documentary. Let's start with Baltimore City. From that story, it says, quote, Baltimore City police have fired an officer who was found intoxicated and slumped over in his patrol vehicle. Officer Aaron Heilman, working and in full uniform, was found slumped over behind the wheel of his marked patrol vehicle on Tuesday around 1.40 p.m. Heilman was taken to the Central District under suspicion of being under the influence. A breathalyzer revealed his blood alcohol level was 0.22. Holy shit! 
So the legal limit is 0.08. At that point, you're pretty fucked up. So he was almost triple the legal limit while he was working and on duty. Uh, story continues, quote, police spokesman T.J. Smith said Heilman was charged with DUI-related offenses and suspended immediately. Interim Police Commissioner Gary Tuggle fired Heilman on Wednesday, saying in a statement, sub, quote, his actions represented a safety issue for himself and the community. I simply won't tolerate it. Good for him. Uh, also out of Baltimore, we have the fourth rule again. Again, the fourth rule of Fisk. The Wire was a documentary. But in this one, we also have both the first rule and the fifth rule. Now, the fifth rule, those stories are very elusive. The fifth rule of Fisk is that when people say blue lives matter, they don't mean the dark blue ones. And of course, the first rule of Fisk is that police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. But from that story, which I need to stress at the outset is like TV level fuckery, uh, it says, quote, a Baltimore police supervisor who works in the unit that trains officers about the Constitution has been arrested and charged with disturbing the peace and failure to obey commands at a strip club in downtown Baltimore. Police said Sergeant Henrietta Middleton, a 12-year veteran assigned to the Inspector General's office, was charged on a criminal citation. Officers had been called to Custom House Avenue outside Norma Jean's club on the block at around 1.20 in the morning on Sunday for a report of a disorderly patron. When officers arrived, they observed Middleton acting in a disorderly manner and that she, subquote, approached an officer and refused to comply with his commands, according to a statement provided by police spokesman T.J. Smith. Middleton, who earned $125,000 in fiscal year 2017, has been suspended. She could not be reached for comment. But this is where the first and fifth rule stuff happens to come in. The story continues, quote, A video recorded by a security officer at another club and posted on Facebook shows a large crowd gathered outside Norma Jean's and a woman being struck by a male officer who is in uniform. Gary Massey said the woman was Middleton, who was off-duty and not in uniform, and that the male officer's response went too far. Subquote, what I saw was a man punching a woman full force in the face, like he was brawling with another man. I'm not saying she wasn't out of order or being disruptive, but he's clearly stronger than this lady. Police said, subquote, the entire course of events is under internal investigation and did not identify the male officer. <laughs> That's Baltimore, man. Shit's crazy. Got a strip club. You got the person being disorderly as the one who teaches people about how not to violate your rights. You have another officer shows up who beats the shit out of her. It's all fascinating. Uh, out of New Jersey, in Englewood Cliffs, we have the first rule again. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, a law enforcement official is being called out for allegedly threatening the town council president in a recording that was played at a public meeting last week. Englewood Cliffs Police Chief Michael Chaffee was recorded allegedly making comments about council president Carol McMorrow. Subquote, I'd like to kill her, but I can't, Chaffee said, according to a recording. And let me, let me pause. The exact words are, Chaffee allegedly said... But then it continues, according to a recording played by McMorrow. It's either him or it's not. There's no fucking allegedly there. But it's, that's a media thing. It bugs the fuck out of me. Anyhow, McMorrow got the recordings, played them at the council meeting while he was there. Uh, story continues, quote, The tape surfaced during the discovery phase of a lawsuit filed by Chaffee against the borough. The recordings were made by Chaffee himself, according to his attorney, who's represented Chaffee on disciplinary matters, but is not the attorney in the civil case. 
The snippet shared Wednesday night is from one of 120 tapes, more than 40 hours of recordings, and it was one that was not marked confidential. It was recorded on January 2nd of 2017 using a borough-owned recorder that officials later took back, and by took back, they asked for it repeatedly and finally filed criminal charges against the chief to get it returned. The chief allegedly says to a borough employee about McMorrow, subquote, she is one hell of a bitch, let me tell you. He also continues, subquote, was Carol breaking my balls yesterday or what? Uh, after saying he'd like to kill her, Chaffee says, subquote, I look at the Shawshank Redemption and I say, hmm, you know, and then laughs. The chief, according to McMorrow, then discusses the pros and cons of killing her with a borough employee. Jesus Christ. That's crazy. So I'll give you that story. Out of Glassboro, we have what I guess would probably be the first rule. It's just kind of commonplace at this point. Uh, but basically, a Rowan University student and his passenger were pulled out of their car at gunpoint because their car allegedly looked like a car supposedly involved in a robbery of some kind. For that story, it says, quote, After class Monday, Rowan University senior Altaif Hassan was giving his friend Giovanna Roberson a ride to the student center when he noticed that a police cruiser had pulled in the parking lot behind him, blue lights flashing. He stopped the car and looked in his mirror. Subquote, he had his gun aimed at me, Hassan said Tuesday, recounting the chilling moment from the day before. A university spokesman said a 911 caller reported an armed robbery and had described a car similar to Hassan's, which prompted police to stop him and act as though he had a gun. No weapon was found, but the hour-plus ordeal terrified and humiliated Hassan and Roberson, caused alarm on campus, and left some students feeling that it was a race-related overreaction that put lives at risk. Videos of the incident on the busy campus were shared on Instagram. The Trenton native said that after he started at Rowan, both Rowan and Glassboro police have been pulling him over dozens of times each year. They always have a minor excuse for pulling him over, he said, and sometimes they want to search the car, which he always allows. So, quote, maybe it's the way I look. Maybe it's my race. I've never seen them do that to the white people, he said. Glassboro police did not respond to a request for comment Tuesday, and Joe Cardona, Rowan's vice president for university relations, said police, subquote, followed protocol. Uh, out of Patterson, New Jersey, a viral video of a deaf man being arrested on Friday has now caught the attention of the city's mayor. From that story, it says, quote, Andre Sayeg said the incident of a Patterson police officer making an arrest on Godwin Avenue has been referred to the Passaic County Prosecutor's Office. The deaf man in the video, identified by law enforcement officers as Racion Adams, appears to be sprayed with mace and elbowed by a cop. Subquote, I have also been in touch with numerous community leaders to assure them that an independent agency is investigating the matter, Sayeg said in a statement. He was to hold a private meeting with community leaders about the incident Monday afternoon. Patterson Police Chief Troy Oswald said Monday that the officer exercised, subquote, great restraint in the incident. Basically, police pulled over someone else, and Adams walks up to the scene. The officer tells him to go away, but he can't because he's deaf. So he gets leveled to the ground by one officer. He gets uh, pepper sprayed to the face, then gets elbowed in the head. And, of course, it's all caught on video. Uh, out of New York, in New York City, 
I guess this is, I don't know if we call this good news or not. I mean, I guess it's good news. It's definitely the first rule of Fisk, which is police will continue to do dumb shit, even when they are being recorded. But from the story, it says, quote, Otis Reese is grateful. His favorite deli has a surveillance camera. He says it saved him from what could have been years in prison after NYPD cops stopped the 30-year-old for walking down the street with an open beer. Turns out it was unopened and in a brown bag. Reese has filed a $1 million notice of claim against New York City, claiming he was falsely arrested for a bogus reason and then illegally searched back in 2016. Reese said he had bought beer down the street, then walked with a closed bottle in a bag to New York's finest deli on 3rd Avenue in the Melrose section to buy a sandwich. Reese said as he walked into the deli, he noticed two uniformed NYPD officers in an unmarked vehicle pull around the corner and park across the street. Surveillance video corroborates Reese's story that he placed the bag on the front counter of the deli, so the owner knew he had purchased it somewhere else. The video shows the two officers, an officer and a sergeant, enter about 20 seconds after Reese walks to the back counter. One of the officers later testified at a pretrial hearing that he had seen Reese carrying an open container on the street and never lost sight of him as he placed the bottle on the counter. The video shows the officers walk right past the front counter and head directly for Reese. He said they asked him where the beer was, which is a sidebar. They would not have had to ask if they had actually maintained visual contact with him because they would have seen him put it on the counter. So you know that officer's testimony was a lie. Uh, it continues. The video shows one of the cops returned to the counter where he grabs the bag. According to a former prosecutor who reviewed the video footage, subquote, you see the arresting officer twist what appears to be the top. The top remains intact. It doesn't come off. It was never opened. There was no basis for the stop for an open container. Uh, Reese, the guy that was arrested, said, subquote, they came back and said, I'm going to jail for an open container. Reese was handcuffed and then strip searched at PSA 7. I don't know what that is. I'm assuming it's the, the PSA is what they call it, jail. I don't know. New York City is weird, y'all. Uh, officers said they found several baggies of drugs and charged Reese with multiple felonies. His defense attorney, uh, Bruce Burns, said he repeatedly requested the surveillance video but received only a portion of it. It did not contain the arrest inside the store or what happened when the officers left the deli. But Reese said what it does show cleared his client. So, quote, I think the video made a real big difference because it shows clearly what the police do. They set people up, he said. Uh, Reese denied that he had drugs. Says out of New York, in North Carolina, out of Durham, we got a follow-up on an earlier story. So back in episode 78, we talked about a high-speed chase through downtown where someone collided with an off-duty sheriff's deputy and killed her. Uh, well, the report for that has come out, and basically the police did not violate any particular policy. From the story, it says, quote, During an 11-minute fatal police chase of a stolen car near downtown Durham in early August, officers went the wrong way on a one-way street and reached speeds of 75 miles an hour, according to a city report. But the officers didn't violate any policies during the August 2nd chase, which ended in a crash that killed a 24-year-old Durham County detention officer. The report outlines concerns police had about carjackings earlier that day, provides some details about police actions during the chase, and explains how those actions are in line with police department policy. Subquote, it was determined that officers involved operated with due regard for safety of others while engaged in this incident, the report states. The investigation has not revealed any policy violation on part of the officers involved. 
Subquote, we all regret where it ended up, said city manager Tom Bonfield. But the officer's judgment at the time considered that it was the second carjacking that involved these particular individuals. Police believe they needed to take more aggressive action to try to stop the vehicle. You know, I, I get the argument. And the guy who crashed into the deputy and killed her, she was a mother of a four-year-old, uh, that guy had guns in his car. So he's been charged with the murder of the deputy. So I get all that. There's been carjackings. you got to do something. But my problem with high-speed chases is that you end up with a fuckload of collateral damage. So you now have a dead officer, a child who's going to have to grow up without a mother, all for two cars because there were two carjackings. So they saw one car and they saw another one. Theoretically, there may have been a third had this been a pattern. But, like, is there no conceivable way to get this guy without zipping 75 miles an hour in a 35-mile-an-hour zone? I don't know. It just it seems it seems ludicrous to me that we risk the human life of innocent bystanders to try and stop someone in this particular type of scenario without figuring something else out. Uh, so that's out of North Carolina. In Ohio, we got a pair of stories there uh, out of Bel Air. Let this be a reminder that sometimes police get rewarded for summarily executing unarmed minorities. Uh, the village of Bel Air has hired Timothy Lohman. You might recognize that name because he is the officer who shot and killed 12-year-old Tamir Rice. Uh, arrived and basically less than two seconds after he got there, Tamir was shot dead. Uh, from the story, it says, quote, The village has hired Timothy Lohman, a former Cleveland police officer who fatally shot 12-year-old Tamir Rice four years ago, as one of two new officers with its police department. The other officer is Eric Smith, Bethesda's still suspended police chief who remains under investigation by the Ohio Attorney General's office for misusing a statewide computer system for law enforcement. Bel Air Police Chief Dick Flanagan confirmed Friday that he hired both Loman and Smith. He said he believes both men deserve second chances. Would love to give Tamir Rice a second chance, but we can't because he's dead. Uh, out of Cleveland, a judge in Cleveland is refusing to send people accused of low-level crimes into the county jail system, citing safety concerns after six inmate deaths in just four months. Holy shit, that's a lot. Uh, it says, quote, the judge, Michael L. Nelson Sr. of Cleveland Municipal Court, said this week that he would release people charged with such crimes until their next court appearance, rather than holding them on bail, which many defendants cannot afford. Defendants who are released must still agree to any conditions imposed, which would include electronic monitoring or regular check-ins. So, quote, six deaths means the jail is unsafe, Judge Nelson said in a phone interview. You shouldn't die before we see you in court. Holy shit. Like, that's, that's revelatory. It's absolutely true. But to hear someone actually say it, my God, this is wild. I don't know if these people are elected or not, but donate to that guy's campaign because he's probably not going to be a judge too much longer. Uh, so I was out of Ohio and Oregon. In Clackamas County, we have the first rule of Fisk again. From that story, it says, quote, Clackamas County Sheriff Craig Roberts on Thursday criticized, subquote, callous comments that three of his deputies made on cell phone videos while an inmate was in a padded jail cell and flailing around uncontrollably from a drug overdose. He said two of the deputies were disciplined, and the third who took the video resigned. The sheriff didn't describe the type of discipline imposed. Subquote, the laughter, substance, and tone of several comments heard from my employees in that video were inappropriate and do not conform to our professional standards, Roberts said in a statement. He also apologized to the inmate's family, now nearly two years after the encounter. 
The sheriff released two videos one day after the Oregonian made a public records request for them and wrote about a wrongful death lawsuit filed this week in U.S. District Court in Portland by the inmate's mother and estate. The suit referenced the videos showing inmate Brian Perry as he was locked in a padded cell at Clackamas County Jail after his probation violation arrest on November 3, 2016. Subquote, look what I got for show and tell today. Deputy Rick Porras says on one video, he suggests they could put Perry in a cage and wheel him into a school to impress on kids not to do drugs. Deputy Lacey Sandquist calls the idea, subquote, fantastic. At one point, Sandquist suggests Perry could be, subquote, the new dare, referencing a drug resistance education officer for students. Deputy Matrona Shadron, the one who filmed the two videos, can be heard saying, subquote, I wish we could show this to his girlfriend. Like, you love this? The suit alleges the county deputies and medical staff from Corizon Health, Inc., the jail's medical contractor, violated Perry's civil rights when they failed to properly screen him, get him prompt medical attention, adequately check on him, or send him to a hospital. They're just watching him die. They're watching him die and taking a video of it. The level of callousness is astonishing to me. It really shouldn't be, because I know we've been doing this for a year and a half now, but it's just like, you're watching someone die. Holy fuck. Like, I've never had that happen. I've never had someone die in front of me, but I've seen people with some serious medical conditions, and I went nuts. Like, I went out of my fucking way to try and figure out how to make sure that they were okay, that they survived, you know what I mean? And you've got three people here thinking, oh, let's put this on fucking Worldstar or Instagram or whatever the fuck else. Holy shit. And then, of course, the sheriff's office didn't mention it, kept it hidden until the lawsuit got filed. It's absolutely ridiculous. So that's out of Oregon and Texas. And Hamilton, yeah, this is some disturbing shit. And it's about politics, but it's got the police involved. Uh, the police department confiscated a taxpayer's yard sign because it offended local Republicans. From the story, it says, quote, Marion Stanford expected the political sign she painted to rile up some folks in her small town of Hamilton in central Texas. But she didn't expect to end up in a heated Facebook exchange with Texas Agricultural Commissioner Sid Miller or for the police to show up to confiscate her sign. The sign features the GOP elephant logo with its trunk up the dress of a female figure with the word help next to the phrase, your vote matters. So, quote, here we have a political party that is using women, Stanford said. I thought the sign represented what is going on now, and we can't just stand quiet. I wanted to tell people we could stop it with voting. Miller, who is notorious for sharing controversial posts to his nearly 800,000 followers, shared a photo of Stanford's sign with the caption, subquote, this is in Hamilton, Texas, and is supposed to be Judge Kavanaugh's young daughter. Notice my opponent's sign in the background. The Democrat sleaze knows no bounds. Subquote, that was not Judge Kavanaugh's daughter, Stanford said. The cartoon was made last year by Washington Post cartoonist Ann Telness, a, Pul a Pulitzer Prize winner. I'm going to do a sidebar. It was made during the Roy Moore debacle, where Roy Moore was accused by multiple people of basically being a pedophile, you know, preying on teenage girls while he was a district attorney. Uh, story continues, quote, Stanford said she began to receive phone calls and was harassed on Facebook. Tuesday evening, she said, police came to her house and said they had received complaints. Now, here's the, here's the Orwellian shit coming up here. Listen to this. So this is what the woman said. So, quote, police told me to remove the sign or they would take it and would arrest me, Stanford said. So I let them take the sign. Here is the city's response. 
The city manager of Hamilton denied the police mentioned arrest or forcibly took the sign. Subquote, it's political season. And a citizen here placed a yard sign that featured a political animal taking an inappropriate position with a young child. A police member visited the owner's home and the owner asked the officer to take the sign. Bullshit. There's no way a homeowner says, police, here, come take my yard sign that I painted and put into my fucking yard so people could see it, unless they were threatened with arrest. Uh, so that was out of Hamilton. In Houston, we have the first rule of Fisk again. Uh, quote, a Houston police department officer is now at the center of an internal investigation after video surfaced on social media of him taking pictures of a woman's backside. And I'm going to note, they have allegedly here of him allegedly taking pictures of a woman's backside, even though there is a fucking video showing him doing it. The incident happened Tuesday night at a Drake concert when a woman recorded a video of a Houston Police Department officer taking pictures of the woman's rear end. Jessica, who didn't want her last name used, said she was shocked at what was happening in front of her. She tells us the officer had no idea he was on camera, caught taking pictures of an unsuspecting woman. Subquote, he was really oblivious to the fact that there were people above him that could actually see his phone and see what he was doing. This guy was in full uniform, by the way. He was supposed to be providing security. And it's just, it's, it, so here's the thing. I, it's creepy that you're taking pictures of women without them knowing about it. There's a certain level of, of creepy voyeurism for that. It's bad enough, but you know, I get it, I guess, because I'm a guy and I like attractive women. So even though it's creepy, I can somewhat understand, but at the same time to do that as a police officer, while you're on duty in full uniform, supposed to be providing security, like you actually have a job that matters because you want to make sure the people there don't get injured or something. And your focus is on a woman's ass. That's just, it's, it's a problem. So that was out of Houston out of Tarrant County. We have good news. Don't let it be said that I don't report good news. Uh, John Nolly Jr. has officially been exonerated. This guy did almost two decades for a murder that he did not commit. From the story, it says, quote, John Nolly Jr. was labeled a murderer for 20 years until Wednesday. The 44-year-old husband and father of four was declared innocent in a Tarrant County courtroom. Subquote, I've been waiting on this day for so long, Nolly said as he walked out of the courtroom. Nolly was released from prison in May of 2016 after the Tarrant County District Attorney's Office said he had been wrongfully convicted. And in May, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals overturned Nolly's 1998 murder conviction. But his name wasn't cleared until Wednesday when District Attorney Sharon Wilson said Nolly did not murder Sharon McLean in 1996. That conviction was largely based on the testimony of a jailhouse informant who claimed Nolly had confessed to the murder, but that informant lied. Wilson said in court Wednesday that investigators have interviewed 70 witnesses since Nolly was released from prison. They have also completed 100 forensic tests. There was enough evidence from those interviews and tests to declare Nolly innocent, Wilson said, but McLean's real killer has not been found. Now, here's a mental thought experiment for you. Imagine if they had done those same 70 interviews and 100 forensic tests back in 1996 when the murder first happened. Remember, when police fuck up and arrest someone who's actually innocent, you end up with two people being hurt. It's not just the person going to jail. That's the person you see. What you don't see is the person who got away with committing the murder and is still out there. So that's out of Texas. In Virginia, out of Charlottesville... A year after the fact, 
Four California men have been federally indicted for engaging in a riot at the Unite the Right rally, where one of the uh, anti-racist folks was killed, Heather Heyer, run over by a domestic terrorist. From the story, it says, quote, Four California men, all alleged members of an organized hate group, were arrested Tuesday and charged with violating a federal rioting law in connection with last year's white supremacist rally in Charlottesville that erupted in deadly mayhem. Authorities described the suspects as members of a militant, racist, and anti-Semitic group known as the Rise Above Movement based in Southern California. The four were arrested by FBI agents and charged with one count each of violating a federal rioting statute and conspiring to violate it. Each offense is punishable by up to five years in prison. So this is about time. I mean, fuck, this is a year later. But it's also kind of surprising because, remember, this is the Federal Department of Justice run by Attorney General Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III. I'm actually quite surprised they're willing to prosecute Jeff Sessions is still a terrible person. He is still the worst person in the cabinet. But it's it's surprising to me that he's actually allowing people to do the job they're supposed to be doing. Uh, so that's it for the state-by-state criminal justice fuckery this week. Every now and again, we do take a look at stories in other countries. And we have one out of the United Kingdom in England in London uh, where a guy was basically had the shit beat out of him and took pepper spray to the face for no apparent reason. From the story, it says, quote, The Metropolitan Police are facing criticism over a stop and search of a young black man caught on video in which several officers wrestle him to the floor before one uses CS spray while he is on the ground. Now, let me do a sidebar. I don't know what the CS acronym is for, but you have two kinds of spray. You have OC spray or pepper spray, which is basically like natural peppery stuff. I mean, shit stings. If you've never had it sprayed in your face, like, you know, you should do it sometime just to see if you can endure that particular experience. Uh, and then OC spray, that's the, that's that. So that pepper spray, OC spray, natural stuff. CS spray is made, it's man-made. It's not natural ingredients. It's special compounds. It's mostly used for riot control. So like they'll spray the shit in the air and it's so potent that people just disperse because the shit's, you know, it's not pleasant. Um, so I don't know what CS actually stands for. I know the element is like chloro, benzo, something or another, some really long ass, you know, name for it, but just know CS spray, like think high powered pepper spray in a nutshell. Uh, the man aged 23 was later found to be innocent of the main reason given for the use of the controversial stop and search powers. The Met said, Following the circulation of the video on social media, the chair of a stop-and-search scrutiny panel set up by the mayor of London's Office for Policing and Crime called for an investigation and told The Guardian that the suspect had been, subquote, taken down to the ground like an animal. On Friday night, the Met confirmed that it would conduct an internal inquiry, subquote, the incident has been referred to the Met's Directorate of Professional Standards. I think it's crazy that we have this type of stop and search type stuff in America. And I know we have it in the UK as well, because that's where we got it from. But it's still, you know, we didn't just import the crazy policing. We also imported their violence towards unarmed minorities who didn't actually do anything wrong. Uh, so fun times. All right. So that is it for all of our criminal justice fuckery for this particular week. Thank you all for bearing with me. I apologize in advance or I guess in retrospect for any issues with the sound. I'm going to do my best. This will be out on time. You will have it 7 a.m. Eastern time. 
Uh, so just let me know what you think and how it turns out. Keep Mike's family in your thoughts. If you liked what you heard, do us a favor, leave us a five-star rating or a written review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you happen to get your podcast. Tell a friend, follow us on Twitter, and as always, thank you for listening. Have a blessed week. We'll talk to you next Monday. Mm -hmm.